And with the normal practice to get into the series we've been doing for a number of months, I think almost years now, on the Apostle Paul, first beginning with his life and now looking at his letters. Um, and uh, we've been in the book of Romans, but I'm going to take a step back from our study in Romans this morning, not that I don't feel myself capable of doing it, but uh, actually my mind has been in other directions. And uh, one of the things in endeavoring to set before you in our New Year's messages, the importance of um, of the pursuit of the simpler things, of the singular things, the singular pursuit of God's presence, the singular pursuit of his pleasure, as we'll see this morning, the singular pursuit of his of the prize, is that I've been trying in, in my own life to sort of simplify things, to put things in their uh, most basic um, um, priorities and, and uh, to pursue those priorities. And um, one of those things, of course, has been attending to the needs of my family, the needs of my wife at this time, and um, also the um, just the, the reading of things that would drive me more and more into the text of Scripture itself, because I really think that so much of um, my own life uh, I, I get all caught up in the technical readings and all that is important, it's good, it's helpful for understanding and ministry. But uh, just to sit and, as, as Mary did, at the feet of Jesus, as we saw last week, and uh, being a disciple and hearing his voice. And um, one of the things I've been doing is I've been reading a book um, that has to do with reading familiar verses in their context. That's at least, it was this, the, the uh, secondary title. The first title is, uh, Let Me More of Their Beauty See. And then the secondary title under that is Reading Familiar Verses in Context. And uh, this writer attempts to do that and say, we we use these expressions such as uh, bearing the cross. But what does that mean? Does it mean what we often think when we talk about bearing our cross? Because it comes, of course, from the Gospels and Jesus' call to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. And uh, so often we get uh, misled into the meaning of those texts because of the familiar, our familiarity with them, many times leading us astray. Uh, you know, not that everything in this book is absolutely um, um, uh, accurate in the fullest way. Sometimes I thought that I'd like to write a letter to this author and simply say, maybe you need to rethink that in terms of context as well. Because we all tend to do that. We all tend, even at our best, um, maybe not to be as sensitive to the context of uh, biblical statements. But um, one of the things that she did uh, in this book is, um, is uh, the, the matter of the subject of worship, particularly what we find in John chapter 4, where Jesus says that the Father seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And um, that's something we often pray, that God will help us to be worshipers in spirit and truth. And what is it, exactly does it mean? And uh, I do believe when I first heard that uh, passage preached on in church, the understanding that I was given was that was a uh, statement of the importance of wholeheartedness and sincerity in worship that spirit and truth was really addressing our own spirits, our own human spirit, coming with sincerity and coming with zeal and coming with desire and intent uh, to worship God with all of our hearts, that all that is within us would praise his holy name. And though that's not a bad thought, is it really the thought that's in that context? And um, so John 4 was before me, attempting to think it through, and as it oftentimes is my lot in life because of things that need to be done in the building. It's funny, I, I will go cuckoo when somebody is uh, maybe singing a song as I'm working in the building or um, running a vacuum or uh, doing something else. And I get so distracted by that because I'm accustomed here in this building, usually most of the time during the day, to the absolute quiet. And sometimes that's distracting too. And I'll say, oh, I wish somebody would call me. <laughs> I should call someone else. Um, but 
I can go to Starbucks in the midst of people going back and forth and just have absolute focus on my computer screen or absolute focus on something that I'm reading. And it's funny, I tend to do some of my best thinking at Starbucks. I was saying to somebody last night, I guess it's the percolating coffee that causes the percolating brain uh, to just move. So it's in Starbucks and also in the shower that I have most of the time of my most uh, creative thinking. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a pen oftentimes in the latter situation, but in Starbucks I have an ability at least to write down some of my thoughts. Well, in Starbucks yesterday, I was uh, musing through John chapter uh, 4, and things were coming to the surface that I have to confess I never saw before. I mentioned that first uh, sermon I heard on John 4, 23 and 24, that God is spirit and they that worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. I remember my pastor saying in those uh, sermons that I heard as a young Christian that John chapter 4 is the great worship chapter, that the great theme of John 4 is the worship of God. I remember him saying, just as you would think of 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 as the resurrection chapter, so we might think of John 4 as the great worship chapter. And though it's true, that's where Jesus ends up. The woman asks him the question, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped at this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Uh, What's the right place to worship? And Jesus is responding to her question with respect to the matter of worship. That's where it ends up. That's not the only thing that's in this passage. It may in one sense be the great worship chapter, but it's more than that. And there's other things that are in this chapter that um, also demand our understanding and our attention. Um, There's also the matter of water. You might say it's the great water chapter. Jesus is at the well of Jacob. The woman has come to draw water out of the well at noonday. Jesus asks her for a drink. She says, Sir, um, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? For the Jews, John explains, have no dealings with the Samaritans. And then Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that you're speaking to, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Jesus speaks about living water, endless supplies of water that spring up unto everlasting life. So water is a great theme of this chapter as well. And I've always known that to be the case. It's the great water chapter. And that has this meaning and significance. But there's another thing that enters into the picture. And I also want to bring that to your attention this morning. And that's the matter of wedding. And that's maybe the one that's not the most obvious, but I want to go into all these things with you this morning. Just give you that as a basic outline of where we're going to go. And let me say the first at the outset that John's Gospel is probably the most carefully constructed of the Gospels. I think all of them are carefully constructed. They're highly structured. Uh, I don't think that these writers just sat down and the first draft, they said everything that needed to be said. I think they, they mulled over it. They thought hard. And again, the Holy Spirit guiding them and leading them in terms of the things that they wrote, they really mapped out uh, a picture of Jesus that is absolutely um, uh, we're going to spend the rest of our lives endeavoring to uh, put the, more and more of the pieces together. It almost seems every time I go through any of the Gospels, there's new things I see that I've never seen before, new relationships I've, I see that I've never seen before. Um, um, one of the things that characterizes me just in terms of my, uh, my, my, my pursuits, the things I like, the things that uh, I have as a hobby, is uh, detective novels. I love detective novels. I've read all the Sherlock Holmes novels, or, uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, famous uh, detective Sherlock Holmes. I've read also uh, much of Agatha Christie's, uh, particularly the Hercule Poirot. Um, books, uh, also much of uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey's books about the detective uh, Peter Whimsey. It's a very whimsical character, very whimsical writer. And then G.K. Chesterton's uh, priest, Father Brown. 
Uh, and all of those books are just amazingly well constructed. Some of you are reading that uh, book I recommended, and one of the things that she does in that book is on the subject of truth. She brings a, a, an illustration about that there was a group of Christian writers, uh, Chesterton, Sayers, I think there was another one, I don't remember who it was, but uh, they were detective writers and they had the detection club in which they had principles of how to do a Christian detective story that you got to keep with reality. And she brings all these things as a bearing upon the subject of truth. Truth is engaged with reality. You can't do mumbo jumbo or hocus pocus or jibbity flibbits in order to get to a conclusion that you can go back and say how in the world did you arrive at that? In the real world things like that do not really happen. Truth demands reality. And uh, so, anyway, when I, when I read the Bible, oftentimes it's with the eye of a detective trying to find the clues and then trying to put the clues together to understand exactly what the Spirit of God is teaching us in uh, these places. And with respect to the Gospel of John, um, John, in his structure, carefully thought out structure, um, he uses a lot of literary devices. I'm going to mention a couple of them this morning. But one of them is also, he, he's, he centers things around seven. The number seven, sometimes the number six, in which a seventh is added afterwards. And uh, you see the seven discourses of Jesus, seven major speeches of Jesus that are found in John's gospel, basically structures the book. Uh, there's seven signs that Jesus did in the first half of the book, the book of signs. Um, and there are seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and um, um, I am the door, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm the true vine. There are those statements, and there are seven of them in number, and many such things as these that we do find. And with respect to the way in which uh, the gospel is structured, this does become very, very important. And I want to begin where Jesus begins, with the subject of water that comes in the play in John chapter 3. This is not the first time the subject of water is mentioned. And something else I should mention is that a lot of the times uh, John uses contrasts, things that are contrasted to one another. Uh, eternal life, eternal death or damnation. Um, the contrast of flesh and of spirit. And uh, there's a contrast of earthly and heavenly things. And um, with respect to this matter of water, there are those matters of earthly water that Jesus appeals to in the book. And in fact, um, there's uh, six of them. I wrote them down. I don't know what they did with the, with the thing that I wrote on. It was uh, an index card, but I'm not looking. I'm not seeming to find it. But um, there are six mentions of water that we find in the Gospels, of earthly water. Uh, the first of them is in chapter 2, where we have the waters of purification that are found in the six jars. Remember, there are six jars. Hold the thought of six jars in your mind, because that becomes significant. You have the waters of purification uh, that were there, that Jesus then took that water and he turned it into wine. And then you have in John chapter uh, uh, 1, actually this is before John chapter 2, chapter 1, we have... Um, and I'm sorry, I'm thinking of something else. Um, you have the waters of um, the new birth. Jesus says in John chapter 3, Except you be born of water and of the Spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's an interesting thing because... Um, Nicodemus responds and says, um, Lord, uh, should I go? am I to go into my mother's womb and be born again? Be born all, all over? Um, and uh, Jesus' response, uh, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And um, do you marvel that I say to you, you must be born again? Uh, Nicodemus says in verse 9, How can these things be? And Jesus' answer in verse 10 is, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, earthly things, and you do not believe, how do you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
We might think of the new birth as a heavenly thing. It's a birth from above. It's a birth by the Spirit. But yet it's a birth that has to do with things that are in this, in this world, in this life. Things that take place upon this earth. And something that as a teacher of Israel, he should have known even from the Old Testament. Where God says through the, uh, the prophet uh, Ezekiel, uh, such things as, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. From all of your sins and all of your transgressions, I will put my spirit in you. A new heart will I give you. Um, this, is, this is the promise of the new birth. This is the promise of regeneration. This is the promise of the powerful working of God's spirit that's associated with cleansing, of a spiritual cleansing that takes place in this world, of the cleansing of sin that we commit in this world. And so it's an earthly thing that Jesus speaks of when he speaks of the water of the new birth. And then we have the water of baptism, both the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And you see that in chapter uh, 3, when um, uh, verse 25 says, and you see how these, th- these themes, they kind of blend together. Uh, let's, go, let's go to verse 22 first. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. And he's going later to say it wasn't really Jesus that was baptizing, but it was his disciples. And it says, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, Salem because water was plentiful there. There was much water there. So you got water even here in chapter 3. So you have the water of purification, chapter 2, the water of the new birth, and you have the water of the baptisms that John was doing and that Jesus was doing in a place where there was much water. Then there arose a discussion uh, between John's disciples and the Jew over purification. So you have waters of purification in the context of the waters of baptism that are being mentioned there. And then you have the waters of the pool of Siloam. I'm sorry, the, uh, the pool at Bethesda in chapter 5. So chapter 5, you have the, the pool of water, you have the water pool, and you remember you have that man um, who was an invalid um, who was looking to get to put into the water so he could be healed. So there needed to be that, he thought, uh, the only way he's going to get healed is if uh, the waters are stirred and uh, uh, he gets to be the first to go into it. So that was his hope with respect to the water. There was the water pool at uh, Bethesda. And then, uh, so we got one, two, three, four. Um, You have the water ritual in chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles where the water was uh, taken from the pool of Siloam and was poured out. Uh, and uh, Jesus then, the great day of the feast, when this water ritual was being done, stands up and says, if any man thirst, if any man thirst, you're doing all this water ritual, but it's never really going to satisfy spiritual thirst. So, so you have um, the water at um, uh, the feast, the feast of tabernacles, the pouring out of water ritual. And then, of course, you have the water in chapter 4 of Jacob's well. So you have all of this water stuff going on in the book of John. And people are thinking all these aspects of water will be the thing that is going to ensure our good and our health and our well-being. Uh, purifying water that helps in ritual Uh, new birth that was promised by Ezekiel Uh, baptisms uh, the glory that John was doing and Jesus was doing Um, water that might heal people from their infirmities Uh, water rituals at feasts again moving into the direction of the rituals that were being done and the well of Jacob that's going to satisfy the thirst of the woman and her family and Jesus comes in the midst of all of that and he's speaking uh, now of something more than just these earthly things he comes to speak of the water that he alone can give the water that alone can satisfy the true hunger and true thirst of the heart and the mind and the soul if you drink of that water you're going to thirst again if you drink of the water that I can give there will become within you a well of water springing up into eternal life Verse 14 of chapter 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the true water 
to be sought and desired that only that Jesus can give, that can slake the thirst of the spiritually thirsty, of those that have spiritual thirst that can be satisfied by nothing of this world. It's only the water that Jesus himself can give. And then this woman is seen as leaving Jesus' presence after this discussion. And an interesting thing takes place. Um, You remember back in chapter 2, you had the water of purification that was in six jars of water. That's an unusual thing to see six jars mentioned in a passage, in a book, in which the number seven becomes the paramount thing. And, you know, when you see something like that, you probably should ask yourself, where's the seventh jar? Is there a seventh jar? Maybe there's not. But, you know, in this case, there is. There is a seventh jar. You look at the words of verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her what? Her water jar. She left her water jar. There was six water jars in the account of the miracle of Cana of Galilee. And now this woman who came to draw water out of the well of Jacob is no longer concerned about earthly water. Something is on offer so far greater than earthly water that she takes her water jar and she just leaves it there and goes and tells the people in her town, come and see a man who told me all things whatsoever I have done. Is this not the Christ? She's just overwhelmed and overjoyed with the water that Jesus alone can give and leaves behind her water jar in a sense of saying, no earthly water is going to meet the need. No earthly water is going to satisfy. The only thing that can give true um, good is the water that Jesus places on offer. And she leaves the earthly water jar and goes and declares to others what great things Jesus has told her, what great things that Jesus himself has come uh, to bring. Better, better than the waters of purification turned into wine. Again, that has a picture of the marriage supper. I think, that's, again, it took place at a marriage. We'll say a bit about weddings in a bit. But it took place at a marriage. And it's a picture of the great feast that God himself provides when there's overflowing blessings and fullness of, of provisions and um, wine, new wine in, in, in abundance that God gives. It all points to the spiritual realities of the blessings that the gospel brings. And in fact, all these things really do. But uh, it's a passage about water, about the water that Jesus gives, greater than any of the waters of this life, uh, but the, the water that springs up unto everlasting life. But then in conjunction with that is this matter of the theme of the wedding. Again, the first miracle took place at a wedding, took place at Cana of Galilee, and that's not to be lost. That here's a, uh, what Jesus places upon offer, offer is something that's even greater than the miracle he performed at that wedding. That, that again pictures the ultimate um, feast of, uh, of uh, sitting down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, all the redeemed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it's also something that takes place within a context of John at the place where they're having this dispute over purification when they're out there baptizing uh, at Enon near Salem back in chapter 3 that John says in the words of verse 27 a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above and that's when his disciples came to him and saying that uh, Jesus is baptizing and all are going out uh, to him and they think that's going to detract from John's place and John's ministry and John's interest and John's dignity. And John says a person can receive not even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I, that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been set before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John sees the ministry of Jesus is not just the one who turns water into wine at a wedding. He's the one who's come from heaven to be the heavenly bridegroom who comes to receive his bride. 
He comes to bring in the marriage supper as the bridegroom, courting his bride, wooing his bride, winning his bride, Christ loving the church, giving himself for it, to obtain for himself his body bride. Ephesians chapter 5. John sees this. Jesus is the bridegroom. And when the whole question of fasting came in in the other Gospels, uh, Jesus says, uh, shall, they, shall they fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's not a time for fasting. The bridegroom is here. It's a time for feasting. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast, but not now. The bridegroom is here. Jesus is the bridegroom. And he comes before this woman at the well of Jacob. Uh, being, we're told that he had to go through Samaria. There was necessity. It's a, a term that's used that speaks of divine necessity. There was a divine necessity that the bridegroom go to Samaria. Why? There was a bride there. There was a woman there. We would think with five failed marriages. She's been through weddings before. One after another, after another, after another. You've had five husbands. The one that you have, that's six, isn't it? The one that you have, and even your husband. Now, we're not told what went on. I think the natural assumption is to say, well, she was just an immoral woman going from relation to relation to relation to relation. But Jesus doesn't say that. And John doesn't say that. She could have had five husbands who died. She could have had five husbands that put her away in, through divorce. Because again, Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. It doesn't have to be that this was an immoral woman at all. This may be a woman that was victimized by a lot of evil men. It could well be that the reason she's living with a guy without the benefit of marriage is that no one wanted to marry her because she's had five husbands already. Even if she's the one that got divorced and got thrown out and sent away. They don't want to take her again. So she's cast out into the world. She needs a place to stay, a place to live. She may be a victim of just a bunch of heartless men. And now the heavenly bridegroom stands before her. A woman with six failed relationships. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. If you think drawing water out of a well is not going to slake your thirst, what about all these relationships, these failed relationships? And Jesus comes before her as um, bridegroom number seven, the perfect bridegroom, the perfect one. And he offers her living water, yes, but you see, this living water that he offers her is in conjunction with himself. It's not just I have a gift to give you of living water that's detached from me. It's me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was speaking to you, you would have asked of me, and I would have given you living water. And that living water is defined in chapter 7, uh, when Jesus says in chapter 7 at the Feast of the Tabernacles when they're doing this water ritual and he says, if any of you thirst you're still thirsting, still thirsting got all this water ritual going on but you're still thirsting, if any of you thirst let him come to me and out of his belly will throw full rivers of living water and, and then the comment of John is this he, this he spoke of the spirit of the spirit which had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified now, this whole question of out of his belly shall full, full, full rivers of living water, it, it could actually mean not just that out of your belly, but out of his belly. Out of the belly, out of the, out of the heart, out of the resources found in Jesus, out of the resources found in the living God, comes forth the Holy Spirit, who comes to do what? He comes to glorify Jesus. He comes to bear witness of Jesus. He comes to lead us to Jesus. He comes to be the binding of our relationship to Jesus, our union with the Son of God. And if the Spirit is the essence of living water, it's the essence of living water that brings us to union with Christ. A union with Christ that is, that is of such an intimacy 
that the scripture defines it as the marriage of the bride to the bridegroom. The seventh one, the perfect one. That's a, you see, it's not just a, a passage about worship, is it? It's a passage about wedding as well as water. Jesus the one who perfectly satisfies the thirsting heart and mind and soul. Who perfectly provides the fullest of intimate relationships through his own love. As a loving heavenly bridegroom who comes to win his bride. To cleanse her, to, to perfect her, to bring her before his presence with exceedingly great joy. You all with me on this? I got this sitting in Starbucks yesterday. <laughs> and it's all really based upon the way John structures these things, the six and seven, that it hit me like a ton of bricks, that Jesus is the perfect bridegroom as well as the perfect source of, of living water that beats anything you can find upon this earth. Even water that gets turned to wine at a wedding. <laughs> so, so superior is that which he himself gives. And it's in the light of this that the call to worship is, is, is highlighted. Again, this woman, whether she knew all the significance of what Jesus is saying, clearly is impressed that this man is not just an ordinary man. He knows all things about her, um, and this offer that he gives is far exceeds anything that this world can, can, can bring. And she's so filled with amazement and, and being impressed by him. And so, some people think, well, he, he, they think she's an immoral woman. They think that Jesus is bringing up the question of the, of the husbands, call your husband because he wants her to be convicted of her sin. Again, that's something we, we're reading into it. It could be, oh sure, it could be. But should we conclude that it is? No, not really based on the text. It's a possibility. But, uh, you know, it's a possibility that might not be so. The, the matter of calling the husband is not so much a question of getting you to see your sins, but getting her to see who he, he is. That he is that perfect bridegroom. That none of these other relations could ever come close to offering and, and securing for her the stability, the certainty, the, the everlasting nature of the relationship he brings in the face of all of the problem, possibly abandonment of, of these men. Now one comes to take her up. One comes to take her to himself. One comes to reveal himself to her as the heavenly bridegroom who secures the good of his bride and meets the needs of his bride, supplies the living water, supplies every good thing um, to his bride. And so she sees, this is a prophet. This is a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she's not looking to deflect the matter. This is an opportunity to get settled a matter of deep importance to the Samaritans and to the Jews. This whole question of the proper place of worship. This again, she's a Samaritan woman, and from birth she's been taught that the place to worship was Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim is talked about in the Old Testament, it's talked about um, particularly is the place where in the book of Deuteronomy, six of the tribes were to stand and they were to declare the blessing of God to Israel. Remember there were the two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. I think in the middle was Shechem. Shechem I think came through where uh, Gerizim was and Ebal was. And six of the tribes were to stand upon Gerizim. Six of the tribes on Ebal. The six tribes that stood on Gerizim were to proclaim the blessings of God to the nation. The six tribes on Ebal were to proclaim the curses of God for disobedience. And so you would think, well, hey, there's a mountain. Mountains are usually good places where people worship. Even Mount Zion is a place where people worship. And the high places are spoken about because in mountains were places that people would worship. Mountains are high and elevated and up to heaven and things like that. We have those associations to people. So Gerizim is the blessed mountain. It's the mountain of the blessings. What a great place to worship. Problem was, you see, the Samaritans only had the first five books of Moses. They didn't accept the other books as authoritative, as part of their canon of religion, their rule of faith. And so they didn't understand that uh, God had actually made Jerusalem and Mount Zion 
the place where Solomon was to build the temple. And because the uh, Samaritans were badly instructed and uh, they came up with this tradition just based upon inferences they made from Deuteronomy, they put up this uh, temple that existed for a number of years on Mount Gerizim. There was a, a Jewish king, a Hasmonean king by the name of John Hyrcanus, who in a battle against the Samaritans, because again, Jews not only had no dealings with the Samaritans, there was a time they actually went to war with the Samaritans and they destroyed the temple about 120 years before Jesus' Jesus's birth. The, 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 the temple on Gerizim was destroyed, but yet the people of Samaria still continued to worship at the site of um, their former temple, though it was no longer in existence. And so our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, as you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So there's a sense in which place is not material to the future of the kingdom of God. It's not on Gerizim, it's not on Jerusalem. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will the Father be worshipped. But then Jesus also needs to not only bring it to a conclusion, well, well, we might not be right, but at least the Jews aren't right, or something like that. No, there is a question, there, there is the reality that the Jews were right. The Jews had the, enti- the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament. And so their worship at, on Zion was proper. It was appropriate. It was God-ordained. And Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you're worshiping in ignorance. We worship what we know. We've got the totality of the revelation God has given. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Again, all the, all the Gentiles needed to understand that. Is that salvation came from the Jews. Came from the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The revelation of God came from those that were the custodians of the law. Those to whom the Messiah came in the flesh. Um, but the hour is coming, and not is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father, not so much in a given place, but in a given way. It's not where, it's how you worship. That's the crucial thing. It's not whether you worship in a, in a home, as the early church did, in a cathedral, as people have done, in a little cheaply constructed building like we're doing this morning. It's not the where, it's the how. It's not the kind of building. It's not the place. It's the way. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. He's not in His essence material. He had a special presence in Jerusalem, but that does not contain him. No house can contain God. Solomon, who constructed the temple in his days, said, The heavens of the heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple that I built. No house can contain God. God is the omnipresent God. He's the spiritual being who inhabits heaven and earth in the fullness of um, his being in, in every place. God is. God is present. Where shall I go to flee from your spirit? The 139th Psalm says, I, I can ascend to the heavens and you are there. Go down to the depths of Sheol. You are there. There's nowhere to flee from the presence of God. And for the psalmist, that was not something that was a threatening thing. It was a wonderful thing. Such knowledge is too high for me. It's wonderful. It's amazing. God is wherever I am. I never out of his presence, his presence to guide me, his presence to lead me and cheer me and, and, and fulfill me. Um, it's for a believer a delightful proposition that God is spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. But you know, in a lot of your Bibles, well, some Bibles actually give two ins, in spirit and in truth. Well, that's not in the original. It's only one preposition. One preposition. A lot of times when you have uh, constructions like that, you have a preposition like in, and then you have um, two things that are separated by the word and. Here you have uh, spirit, and you have truth. 
that that's a uh, literary device that's known as oh, I'm sorry I do this to you it's Hendiatus did I do that right? that's with an N Hendiatus and Hendiatus is something that takes two things separated by and and it, it binds them together it binds them together so the spirit and truth are not distance apart they're united almost to the place where you can say to worship in the spirit of truth or truthful spirit or the truthful spirit now the question is what spirit is being spoken of here well when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit in John 14 and says I'll send the, pray the Father to send you another comforter he says even the spirit of truth He calls the Spirit the Spirit of Truth. The first thing that Jesus highlights about the Holy Spirit is that he's the Spirit of Truth. And so I do believe it's the Holy Spirit. I think it should be capitalized. It's not referring to our own spirit. The Father is seeking people to worship him sincerely. Or or the Father is seeking people to worship him with integrity. And that's, of course, he's seeking people to worship him with integrity and with, uh, with sincerity. But the nature of our worship is that we worship in the spirit of the living God. That God's spirit is present with the worshiping people, animating and activating and inciting true worship that brought into the presence of God. You look at the Philippians 3 passage we're going to look at this morning in our morning worship, and that's how Paul sees the church, how he defines the church. He says in chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Again, those that are introduced to the reality of the heavenly realities that Jesus brings, not just the earthly, but the living water, himself is the heavenly bridegroom. We're brought into the orbit of Jesus working in us by and through the Holy Spirit. And so... The Spirit brings us to glory in Jesus. The Spirit brings us to be the true circumcision, not having a circumcision that's outward in the flesh, but that which is inward in our hearts. The taking away of the foreskin, the hardness of the heart, that we would have a heart that loves Him and desires Him and seeks Him. And where the Spirit works, binding us to Jesus, introducing us to the blessings Jesus brings of living water, but also connection to Him as the heavenly bridegroom, our glory is not in earthly things. It's in, it's in Christ Himself. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Those things are put together and put no confidence in the flesh. seems to me all those ideas are ideas that really do surface in Jesus' words to the woman at the well. Don't put your confidence in the well of water that you're drawn from. Don't put your confidence in even waters of purification. I can turn to the wine. Don't put your confidence in any earthly reality, but put your confidence in the heaven-sent Son of God. He is the husband who will persevere in his love, who will provide for you all of your needs, who will be the one in whom your security is to be found and um, he is the one in whom you are to glory because he's the one who gives the spirit who testifies of him and who binds us to the Lord Jesus so that we glory in uh, the Lord Jesus and so worship is to be brought in the power of the spirit the spirit that brings reality into the lives of God's people and truth is often expressed in terms of reality the true things of the gospel versus the types and shadows of the Old Testament that pointed to the realities that were to come. Or it could also be the spirit that is the spirit of faithfulness. The spirit that, the truth also can mean faithfulness. When we speak of somebody that's true to his, his spouse or her spouse, we speak in terms of faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is, is being true. It's being trustworthy. And the Spirit comes as the Spirit that will never forsake us, never abandon us, never leave us without uh, the, 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 the you know, He's not just going to come upon us and, 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 and then take off, but the Spirit that will be with us forever. 
the spirit that will guide us in life and the spirit that will ultimately bring us to Christ's presence with eternal joy and with eternal glory. So there's something of a fullness that's in the fourth chapter of the book of John. It is indeed a, a, a chapter about worship. But it's also preeminently a chapter about Jesus. Jesus, the source of living water. Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, who brings us into a joyful embrace of his faithful commitment to us and his faithful provisions for us. Is the heaven-sent bridegroom who comes into this world in a mission to seek and to secure a bride for whom he dies and whom he cleanses and whom he perfects and whom he ultimately brings into his presence with everlasting joy. And all those themes really are really throughout the first four chapters of the book of John. You see water galore in those opening chapters. You see weddings galore in the opening chapters. And all of it to bring us the bow our knee before him in worship. I think worship also, in a sense, is, uh, is there. Certainly there in the reaction that um, Nathaniel made to Jesus when... Um, and then some of these expressions that are made about Jesus, when um, Nathaniel hears Jesus say that um, he saw him the previous day under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It seems to me that was a, an expression of realization that probably brought him to if not actually to bow the knee in in worshipful allegiance yet in his heart to be doing that very thing Um, that's where the gospel should leave us that's where the revelation of God in Christ should ever leave us at the foot uh, at his feet in, in, in an attitude of reverence and adoration and devotion and worshipful love well, that's where I was yesterday in um, Starbucks. <laughs> Wanted to bring those things to you this morning. I have a couple of things. Uh, let me go to Doris first, because go ahead, Doris. Yes, that was really blessing in this lesson, this teaching about the water, the points of view that you tell all the deep points that you brought us today, this morning. Mm-hmm. And it's still, the water is like so much blessing for us. Because we drink for it when we're thirsty. Mm-hmm. We do our need basics mm-hmm. right, around the house. We are cleaning uh, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and by the scientists, it says we clean with the water. Yes. And we're comprised of a good bit of water ourselves. Yes, so 90%. This, you know, this is, might be, we're not taking it, um, I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, uh, advantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have it so much. Mm-hmm. But when this cold was, I don't know, like a month ago, that was very cold, so we have a problem with the house, which is no water, the mm-hmm. water was frozen, the, the pipes. Mm-hmm. And that's it. When the water come back, so it was, wow. Mm-hmm. This is, you, know, you don't know how much it is, mm-hmm. how much it's cost, so how much it's so uh, good mm-hmm. to have it. A blessing, mm-hmm. the water is coming from God. Yes, right? Amen. That's a, Amen. And you know, you, you reminded me of something. I, I actually put here the uh, the water at uh, Bethesda uh, because I forgot actually what I originally had is the six things before the seven, and that's the foot washing. The foot washing in chapter thirteen, when uh, Peter says, uh, "You will not, I, you will not wash my feet." Jesus says, "If you, I don't wash your feet, you, you got no, you got no pardon me." He says um, that uh, there's a need for the first of all, the, the bath I've given you, that uh, you've been washed every bit clean, but now you need to have your feet washed because we daily contract the defilement of this world. We daily sin and we daily need the cleansing that only the blood of Christ can bring. So that does put together this matter of the of, of purification and also the reality of the water of cleansing that Jesus himself brings, which is connected to new birth. I mean, so these themes just, they, they flow into one another almost so inevitably and, and naturally. Um, but there's really something of a great 
fullness to the picture. So we're going to be thinking upon these things and trying to pluck out blessings from them just in all, all the days of our lives. Tim, did you have something? It came to my mind where we talk about that um, Jesus says to Martha, Mary has chosen the better things mm-hmm. sitting at his feet. And, you know, this is sitting at Jesus' feet and what he's done for us mm-hmm. in these ways is just mm-hmm. glorious. Yes. And again, it's the question of personal commitment to him in, in, a, in a discipleship relationship of owning him as our master, as our Lord, and as our king. Uh, and again, all the blessings that uh, flow from him should never be extracted from him. You know, I think the problem is often in Christianity today is that people are running after the blessings and not the blesser, not the one who gives the blessings, but the blessings themselves. And, of course, they tend to define blessings oftentimes in terms of earthly benefits rather than the heavenly and spiritual benefits. Because the blessings of the Christian life meet us in the midst of suffering as well as in the midst of feasting. It's not just at marriage suppers. It's in, it's in, it's in the valley of the shadow of death where we fear no evil. And his rod and his staff comforts us. I think I heard Billy Graham say that uh, mountains are great for vision, but it's in the valley the fruit is born. So there's a the sense in that. Well, our, our time is gone. Thank you for humoring me. I, I, I just had those thoughts burgeoning up in my brain, and they give me. I didn't know when I'd have opportunity to to give voice to this, and so I thought this morning would be a good time to do it. And I hope it's been beneficial. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we do give you thanks for the fullness and the richness of your word. And we're thankful for John's gospel. We're thankful for these lines of thought that we've gleaned from its teaching this morning. And pray that we would be filled with a sense of wonder, love, and praise as we consider our Lord Jesus. As we consider the reality of all that is in him and all that we receive through union with him. We're thankful that that union is the union of a of a husband to a bride, the fullness of his, the love with which he's loved us. And we're thankful that in him there is the fullness of provision. He provides for us all that we need, the spiritual blessings that slake the, the, the thirst of our souls and bring us into the fullness of the uh, realization of um, what a, what, how dependent we are upon you for all things. And we're thankful that you supply us all things in accordance with your own glorious riches. And Lord, it's in response to this, we want to get this matter of worship right. We want to worship you in the way you desire us to worship. We want to not so much be caught up with the surrounding facilities in which we worship, whether we worship in a large building or a small building, amidst a few or amidst a great number. Help us to be focused upon you, the object of our worship, and help us to bring to you the worship that you seek, even that which is brought in spirit and in truth. So we pray you'd help us to think upon these things. We pray that you'd help us to have understanding in them as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.